Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Buy tickets and merch and find other ways to support them there. My name is Jason Daphnis. I am mercifully free of the ravages of intelligence, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. That's right. Uh, I'm Cody Narvison. No one created me. I am evil. Evil existed long before good. I made myself. I cannot be unmade. I am all-powerful. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Wow, I feel like I've been kind of upstaged. That was quite an introduction, but uh, I, I guess I'm an obviously dangerous man, unbalanced if you ask me. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. I'm Aaron, and I've been turned into a dog for a while, and you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. And returning uh, for his, what, fourth, fifth appearance? Yes, indeed. Uh, round of applause for uh, returning guest Seth Zarati joining us for today's movie. Hello, Seth. Hey, guys. Thanks. Uh, great to talk about another Terry Gilliam movie. It feels like I am just shoehorned into anything with Bruce Willis or directed by Terry Gilliam. I was going to ask about yes. this. I was going to ask. I didn't, I didn't see the cameo that Bruce Willis had in this film, so I was going to ask where he was. Did you find, uh, at did you what find point? Himself? It yeah, was sort uh, of a Where's was, Waldo situation. It, it, at the end of the movie, he's one of the knights that gets skewered by him himself. Oh, uh, he's, yeah. he's indeed credited as the hot dog knight. Yes, I think it's um, Bruno. Actually, it says Bruno! he's credited as just Bruno. But that, uh, gotcha. fa- famous, famously, ten, eleven years after this, he would return. Um, this is, uh, of course, maybe not, of course, Terry Gilliam's nineteen eighty one film, Time Bandits. We're going to be talking about it. Is playing at the Trilon. Um, and it's the first in a, in a while, I think, that's going to be playing at the Trilon physically, uh, or at least as part of a new series. Um, they've been catching up with Wong Kar Wai movies, rerunning those, uh, and we're trying to get ahead of the schedule by staying on top of it with uh, with this film. Um, that's enough time, I think, to give Aaron time to give us a little bit of a summary. Indeed, yes. Thank you, Jason. Time Bandits, 1981, directed by Terry Gilliam. Uh, the film was Terry Gilliam's third feature film after co-directing uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, and then after that, he directed a film uh, called Jabberwocky, but this is his third uh, directing credit. Uh, Time Bandit stars Craig Warnock as a young 11-year-old boy named Kevin. Kevin is fasc- fascinated with history, uh, playing with his toys. He lives uh, kind of in a, a normal, you know, normalish uh, suburban house uh, with his uh, generally negligent parents who spend all day watching television and complaining uh, about the fact that they don't have the latest advances in technology, uh, toasters and, and ovens and the like. Uh, one day, uh, one night, Kevin is surprised when a knight on horseback crashes out from inside his wardrobe. The next day, six dwarves similarly spill out of his wardrobe. Uh, the six make up the titular time bandits of the film's title. Uh, the actors for the six uh, time bandits are David Rappaport, Kevin Baker, Malcolm Dixon, Mike Edmonds, Jack Purvis, and Tiny Ross. 
the six have recently made off with the Supreme Being's map of the universe that shows a number of time portals, to different periods in history. Uh, the Supreme Being here is a, essentially God and is being played by Ralph Richardson and voice acted in various scenes by Tony Jay. Uh, the Time Bandits, along with Kevin, travel to different era, eras of time, including Greece and Italy during the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, they are on the run from not only God, but also being chased by a being known simply as Evil, played by David Warner, who desires the map for his own nefarious reasons. Uh, despite being a quite weird film, uh, Time Bandits was a critical and commercial success, and along with uh, Brazil, uh, Terry Gilliam's next film, kind of helped define Terry Gilliam's uh, eccentric style uh, after his uh, uh, early period uh, with his Monty Python work. Jason, take it from here. I will. I expect you not to talk for the rest of the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Aaron, for that fine, fine summary. Uh, I'll lead off with my top level thoughts. Uh, I thought for sure that this must have been like Terry Gilliam's sixth or seventh movie because it is so solidly and stupidly Terry Gilliam. Um, a good bit of fun, but it is just reaching in so many different directions. There's, uh, there's the anti-consumerist angle and themes that it tries to play with. There's the mythological fiction angle of these, uh, you know, time bandits maybe being cherubim of God when from when he was creating uh, the universe. There's the sci-fi angle of you know gathering so many like Avengers Assemble of you know dozens of different eras of of fiction. Uh, there's the techno fetishist angle with evil genius David Warner steals the show. I think. Um, uh, sort of being the, the the progress, the unchecked uh, hubris of man's development. Um, and then at the end, it sort of does a victory lap as if it did like pay off any of those, uh, I guess, threads. It, it doesn't often. I Full disclosure, I watched this movie twice, once uh, with Seth yesterday and then once later on with Aaron and Harry just to sort of reify my own understanding of it. Um, and it revealed some interesting new stuff. Uh, just quick thoughts. There's some anti-Greek slander that I don't really agree with that I take on with. Um, <laughs> and any movie that is about time, time travel and being in different areas of history, especially when you literally have a map for it and does not feature even a single solitary dinosaur, complete and utter failure on that level for me. Uh, Cody. Wow. Uh, that last, uh, those last few sentences um, almost left me speechless, but I'm trying to take this in stride. Uh, very well said, Jason. I, uh, I came out of Time Bandits with mixed feelings, uh, uh, maybe as well. Um, I think right now that basically holds true for me with Terry Gilliam's other, the films of his that I've seen, and maybe Monty Python adjacent films in general. Uh, there's a, a very distinct sensibility or even a few sensibilities present in some of those movies, uh, including this one, Time Bandits, that I just didn't get exposed to until maybe college. And I'm still very slowly in the process of getting the full picture of of that vibe. Um, mapping something like Time Bandits to something like 12 Monkeys, uh, previous episode, and Brazil, uh, not previous episode. Uh, there's some obvious common threads that also happen to be things I like about these movies. Uh, it's uh, not just the spectacle that I like and the production design, which is really elaborate and detailed, but there's a certain impulse for Gilliam to, to have these visually engaging sequences in cramped quarters. Uh, like the end result is usually something big and something messy and something that was created with practical effects, as far as I could tell. Uh, and there's something really textured and visceral uh, to me about creating your spectacles that way. Uh, and that's something I tend to gravitate toward. Um, the biggest differences, uh, I guess, then from those other films to Time Bandits is that these are all, I would argue, like really dark films at their core. Um, but Time Bandits felt somewhat determined, I guess, kind of alluding to what Jason said about overstretching itself. It felt determined to put on a lighter front or a few different fronts while Brazil and 12 Monkeys, uh, which are 
later and much later works in Gilliam's filmography, they sort of lean in, into the grunginess of those realities in a way that feels more realized. Um, just something about having a kid be our, our bringer into this world and then having him stick around as people get impaled really gruesomely and we're chomping heads off rats. That's just like a weird juxtaposition of tones uh, that I just couldn't really grapple with. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, the production design kind of really carries this movie for me. The story is really loose but uh, i guess technically it's it's there um there were some sequences that really did pay off for me um the hanging cage escape and the escape from kevin's room at the start of the movie i thought those were, those were really fucking cool scenes um and like this movie is worth seeing for those scenes alone uh in my mind uh at the very least i um yeah, i don't know there, there's some fun uh, like poking fun at suburban life that sort of bookended the film. But again, that's just kind of another drop in a bucket uh, that has a lot of other drops in it. That metaphor didn't really work. I didn't know where that was going. But uh, anyways, I should wrap this up. This was an experience that I, I had a nagging feeling that I was missing just a little something. Um, I don't know if it was context for Gilliam style or context for formative eighties films or something else entirely that I was just kind of missing, but uh, I've been meaning to watch this movie for a long time and I'm very glad I did. And I'm also glad that we get to talk about it. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for Harry to give his thoughts. Hey, thanks Cody. Um, my feelings are similar to yours. I'm maybe cooler on this movie. I should start off by saying I don't think I enjoyed watching this movie like very much at all. Um, I don't necessarily know that it was a, a bad movie uh, or I would even call it a bad movie, but I, it just really did nothing for me. Um, I think that there are just some sensibility things that I um, took umbrage with in terms of my own personal enjoyment. I really am not a huge fan of like um, – like broad comedy sort of like troupe movies where there are a bunch of scenes inserted into movies where the main characters are there to watch something else unfold. And this is like essentially at times it feels like Terry Gilliam making a skit show out of a movie through history, which like sounds better in concept than it actually is. And was like a real bummer for me. There are just like three or four scenes. I can remember the Napoleon scene, the Robin hood scene, um, the scene with the troll, uh, the scene on the Titanic where like, it was th that those scenes were like so profoundly unfunny to me that it was almost embarrassing for me to watch. And I know that might be sacrilege for people. And, and so I apologize. I'm not trying to like shit on Monty Python or that sensibility. It was just like, they were such like complete misses for me in a way that like very rarely happens to me that it was like almost baffling. Um, that being said, I, there are a lot of things I appreciate about this movie, the like almost Escher esque, um, set design particularly at the end is really fantastic um aaron you you repeatedly alluded to and i agree with the fact that like all of the effects in this movie are like practical and often homemade and like clearly a lot of like intentionality and um thought was put into their designs and love and care and it really shows right like i think that the effects really show up in this movie in a big way in in a way that that makes them exciting sometimes they work against the movie in my opinion in that like if there are scenes that are primarily a vehicle for Monty Python troop members to be funny. There are scenes that operate primarily to show off practical effects at the expense of actually doing anything, which is a problem for me. Um, but that's again, a sensibility thing. Um, I don't know, maybe like, I don't love like the aesthetic of the early eighties. Like there, this movie is like really like 
dark looking and, and sort of ugly in my opinion. Um, again, I understand that that might be sacrilege. Um, there was a certain nostalgia associated with it for me. It really reminded me of like the other, like ugly, uh, dark, practical effect movies that I grew up with in my childhood, like the Goonies or um, Willow or like the non-animated section of Pagemaster. Um, I don't love any of those movies either. Right. So like, or like dark crystal, I guess. Um, and so like, I, maybe I'm, I reacted more negatively to that than I, um, than I thought I would, but I don't know. I just like this, this was like a, it's a weird movie. I don't really think I fuck with Terry Gilliam's style that much. although. Um, looking at the movie after I had watched it, there are some really interesting anti-authoritarian themes in this movie. Um, that being said, like, I just don't, I don't know that he makes them happen. Like I didn't come away with this movie feeling really great about any of what it had accomplished, um, in any capacity. Um, and, uh, so I guess that is all just to say it wasn't really for me. Um, but I'm really interested in hearing how everyone else felt about it. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I'll kind of be the other side of that coin. And I don't think I, I loved this movie, but I, I think I enjoyed this movie, uh, a fair amount. I think probably, probably more than, than I think, I guess we'll see what Seth thinks, but I, I, I think I, I, uh, you know, kind of often when researching and kind of writing up the summary for a movie, my kind of true feelings will, will come out like I'll watch a movie. I'll think, okay, I don't really know what I thought of that. And then as I kind of do research and write the summary, um, a lot of that kind of comes to to the front. Um, I think when I was doing that for this film, I think I generally started getting a little more positive on it. Uh, you know, the, the watching experience that, that Harry and Jason and I had, uh, you know, we were, we were all kind of watching this, uh, together, uh, over the internet. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, that can be a hard way to watch a film like this, specifically a comedy, but also kind of this kind of, you know, goofier uh, style of film. I think that can be a hard movie to watch in that manner. Um, so in the moment, maybe it wasn't the best kind of measure for how I was feeling about it. But I think that kind of as I'm looking back on it, you know, I think that a lot of the pretty obvious and, and kind of factual narrative issues with this film don't bother me that much. Uh, I think that this kind of tying into what Harry said, I think that this is absolutely uh, the kind of movie that if I had grown up with it, I, I think I would have really loved it. Uh, I grew up watching a ton of Monty Python, but for some reason, uh, Terry Gilliam's uh, kind of like directorial stuff just never uh, got in front of my eyes for some reason. But I think if, if you compare this to like Goonies specifically, which I think is just a bad movie, but like even something like Princess Diaries, which is a similar movie, I didn't see that until college. Uh, I don't especially love that movie. Um, I think that this this movie is, in my mind, like a lot more fascinating and interesting than most of those, uh, you know, very practical kind of it, young adult adventure movies. Uh, that I yeah, think sorry. Of. Did you mean did you mean Princess Bride? Uh, Princess Bride. Princess Diaries is a fine film in its own right. But yes, Princess Bride is what I was thinking of. Uh, yeah, I saw that for the first time in college, which is not and it was just like an experience of like, I didn't grow up with this, so I can't appreciate it. OK, on to the next one, I guess. That's um, a wild opinion, but we're, we don't have to get it's, into it. It's, it's a good movie. I just like, I respect the movie. Yeah. Um, you know, this is essentially kind of a mishmash of maybe slightly mediocre Monty Python bits, uh, in different time periods as the film kind of jumps around. Uh, but I guess I didn't hate that. I, I hate to kind of sound like a grump, but, um, I like how this movie 
looks and I like how it feels. And I'm thinking specifically about what not just Terry Gilliam, but a lot of like maybe similar directors have done specifically in recent years, like pretty much anything Tim Burton's done. Uh, not just like how bad a lot of his movies are recently, but like I think they look like shit. And I think that when you look at this movie, there's this physicality to the sets and the costumes and even like the makeup. It's all quite stunning, despite being weird and over-exaggerated in all these weird ways. Uh, Terry Gilliam has talked about his love of, uh, and this is getting slightly more technical than I can talk about, but he's talked about his love of wide-angle lenses specifically and how it can give his films this kind of weird, very unstandard look. Uh, but he, he has said that it's his films are ones that often kind of hold up with repeat viewings because there's so much kind of around the edges of each frame. There's so much detail packed into uh, every scene. I think that that seems like it's true. I'm interested to hear if Jason thinks that's correct uh, as he saw it twice. Um, but I think I liked this movie. Uh, again, I did not grow up with it, so I don't think it will ever have kind of that spot uh, in film for me. Uh, but also, uh, lastly, this is a film that correctly uh, lampoons the Greeks as oafish buffoons. So I can't really hate okay, it in that okay, manner. Okay, okay, uh, okay. Well, standard of living to, in Europe. Curious to hear what curious to hear what Seth has to say about this okay. movie. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be the, uh, I'll be Switzerland here, not, not Greece, you know, no democracy here, but, mm-hmm. um, is that more anti-Greek? This is going to be the, the anti-Greek episode of Trilove. What did you think of the movie, Seth? Finally. Yeah. This will also um, be our last episode of Trilove. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I kind of fall in the same boat, uh, as Harry and Cody, uh, and, and a little bit, um, just in general, I didn't grow up with. Uh, the Monty Python sort of sensibility. And so I remember watching it. Uh, I don't, I don't want to date this by references to other current events, but uh, I was, we're watching uh, WandaVision and each episode is set in a different time period. And it kind of has that sort of sketch, you know, or vignette quality to it. But while we're watching that, we're thinking like, where does the plot go? Like what is moving here? And I kind of felt myself thinking the same thing in the, especially in the, you know, in the first few sets or vignettes that you want to call them periods where I like, like you said, technically, visually, they, they, they stand out. Like I can remember exactly how each of these eras look and the costuming and and the set design and all these types of things. But like they, they all just kind of got long in the tooth where I was thinking, like what is what is happening? Like what is supposed to be happening, or is it just a uh, a playground for for sketch comedy? Um, and then the other the other part that I thought was interesting uh, is you know comparing this to other Gilliam movies. There is a lot of those uh, undercurrents of you know the sort of anti consumerist, the unchecked you know growth of technology the, uh, you know, questioning authority, all those types of things that are there. But my, you know, my, my main point of comparison is 12 monkeys. They, they, it is nowhere near as, you know, brought to the forefront there. It's mainly just lampooning um, Kevin's parents at the beginning and the end of the movie. So altogether, you know, well-made movie. I don't know how enjoyable it was. And I have a little bit of, you know, I have some questions about, you know, why was it constructed the way that it was? Yeah, uh, I think you, I, I like the the last couple of points you brought up, Seth, and it kind of gets to what 
Harry was talking about uh, as well. So I get like, I'm going to try to lump those together to maybe connect what I was feeling the sort of being ingrained in not just like a time, but this lack of narrative impetus uh, kind of, yeah. I think both, both Seth and Harry noted um, like this sort of sketch show dynamic. And now I, I agree that is like a really good thing in theory. It's my fallback for whenever I like I'm watching a movie and I'm thinking like, wow, there's like, there's a lot of riffing going on. It does feel like it's like a sketch show thing. That's trying. I don't like, I, I guess I don't know if this movie was trying very hard to hide it or what, but you know, I, I think of Judd Apatow movies, um, which like in my head are just like always two hours, 20 minutes. And like, there are just no cuts ever. Um, I don't think this is quite like as an egregious, an, an example of that, but like, we're, we're talking about things that don't, uh, not necessarily don't age well, but don't stick with us because they are of a certain time, like Gilliam and Monty Python and the Goonies and a lot of things are sort of ingrained in a, what was that, Harry? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, or like a uh, a movie that is meant to be a vehicle for a bunch of SNL stars. That's what this reminded me of also. So like, I guess credit to Monty Python. I liked it much more than I liked those, but it had a very similar sense of like, okay, now is the time where we're going to showcase this group of funny people doing things that are meant primarily to demonstrate that they're funny as opposed to like be a movie. Right. Yeah. I, I think that's a good way of contextualizing too. And like, while while a lot of the specifics of that problem are dated or ingrained again in that specific era, like pacing problems are, you know, we frequently joke that we're rubes that can't handle movies longer than 90 minutes, but like pacing is definitely an issue and uh, like an issue that can happen. And like, that was a problem for me in Time Bandits. Like there's a point 90 minutes in where Every, like they they get out of the cages and it's like hey you know time to go you know like let's go home and the beat for them like finishing the movie is the kid going like hey wait you guys we can't go yet there's a half hour left in this movie like we have to go do this other thing and it it's ah when a, a movie so, so just like egregiously like holds up its watch to you from the screen like i i don't know that's it's that's something that just never sits well. So I, I don't know, like that's, I, I think there is something there and not just like coming from it, from like this, uh, like crony perspective of like every movie needs to be shorter, um, which all movies do, but like, I don't know, but doing, doing a longer movie, having a longer movie at the expense of letting your, your cast riff is such, uh, is such a weird thing, man. I don't know. I see. It's interesting to hear Harry mention that, like, I mean, obviously, clearly the, the movie um, is built to foreground the comedic voices in it, right? You know, like the the troupe is sort of a character and you see the little, you know, the personalities uh, appearing within them, within the bandits. And then you have like standout pieces like with Michael Palin and um, and Shelley Duvall as with the recurring characters of Vincent and Pansy, where they uh, like the, it, it, the whole movie is is like just vignette to vignette. uh comedic bits right and that's pretty standard python structure in a lot of ways but i think the problem is, for me is more almost the inverse of what of what harry was saying where or what i heard harry saying anyway where 
um, like that's not the problem to me. The problem to me is that there is the pretense of like a meaningful story or connective tissue between these things. Uh, you know, like the sure. framing device. Yeah. yeah. The framing device of, of Kevin as, you know, the, the child whose imagination gives him an edge, um, on, like you'll notice pretty much all of the bandits don't know, you know, basic mythology, like the Robin Hood story or, uh, you know, the whole ogre thing. Like he's the one who has, who knows how to crack the ogres back to, you know, satisfy him and get him off the boat sort of thing. Um, there's, there's like hints of that. There's, there's, there's poking at like, there's a purpose to all of these things being in the order they are. And then by the end, clearly it's, it's almost as if they said, well, there's no, there, there actually was none all along. We're just going to tie off these threads. Sean Connery is going to be a fireman. Now his parents are going to explode and the movie's going to end. Um, you know, I don't mind a stinger ending or even a goofy ending, but it just feels like a lot of the things that they put forward were not fully or satisfyingly, uh, sort of, I don't know, tied off by the end. Um, it almost like it didn't believe in the core concept of here's a kid, here's the imagination, here's his imagination, like giving him an edge and giving, letting him like thrive in these situations. It's almost as if that was inconsequential by the end. And that was my problem more was like the fact that it felt like it needed to have a story rather than being a series of like fun vignettes and the character being throwaway. He's built up as kind of an important character, uh, throughout, you know, his inner, his interactions with, uh, you know, legendary characters of history. Um, and I think that that gave me like weird expectations throughout watching this movie again, really brought that into focus, but, uh, I saw two hands go up and then one come back up. So Cody. Yeah, I put mine down again because I've already said a lot on this and I want to make sure we get other voices, but the, I really quick, your, um, I really like what you had to say about the, the Kevin character. I think I like that better explains or fleshes out opinions I have about that character in this movie than I could frame in my own head. Um, and you're, you're very correct. I think about like that setting of expectations because uh, like to, to give this movie some credit, this is an incredible inciting incident the uh, the see and correct me if right. like or like if anybody feels differently about it i'm all ears but like in my mind the like the two incidents of strangers crashing into this kid's room and then running from a floating head as the room expands outward is and there's no we're not bogging down any like scenes with like explanation of what's happening that doesn't co- uh, come up until like 31 minutes into the movie, I remember because I checked. It was like, oh, now we're getting the the rundown of things. Like the fact that we just jump into it and yeah, it, it sets a very specific tone for what this movie is and it, it like gradually gets away from that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like shout out to uh, like, again, one of the scenes that I think really like makes this movie worthwhile is is that inciting incident sequence. So I have a lot of thoughts about Kevin as a character. I don't disagree with you, Jason, but just because I think that, and this is how I feel about a lot of the movie in general. um, And I'm actually coming around, I guess a little bit uh, having thought about it more and more as I, as I talk and as I um, sort of parse out what Aaron was saying. But I think that, that the problem with this movie is that I think the concept is better than the execution. I really love the concept of this movie, right? Like this idea of a, of a kid who's a history buff and he feels frustrated and powerless and sort of bored in his environment. Um, and then like he gets to experience all of history and like it integrates really well with with the uh, auteur sensibility and weirdness of Terry Gilliam to present this like this actually really formally and thematically um, 
realized idea of anti-authoritarianism um, anti through history. And I think even when I squint, I think that that makes the sketches that I had such an issue with really thematically resonant, right? Because you, you cast the Monty Python cast as historic characters throughout history, and all of a sudden, all of history is farcical. Meanwhile, you get the supreme being who is farcical and who constantly contradicts himself, which there there are some subtleties there, but that was an interesting part of this movie for me is I don't like the main characters of this movie are the time bandits, right? So like they are these sort of like rascally anti-authoritarian figures. The supreme being ends up manipulating them. I like the supreme being is not a good dude in this movie. He's an asshole, right? And like we're not supposed to necessarily agree with with where he comes down, just like we're not supposed to agree with the parents and just like we're not supposed to see these authoritarian figures of history as particularly um like virtuous or impressive. This ends up being an anti-authoritarian statement that says like nobody knows any better than you, kid sort of thing, right? And like by by um processing history and by researching history, you can come to understand that. I mean, I really think that the like the coming of age um metaphor at play here is this idea that if you understand history, you'll understand that nobody actually knows what they're talking about. And so don't let anybody tell you that you're not like worth it or like that you, you that you're no better are that they're better than you sort of thing. Um, and instead you have to sort of find or make your own role models, which is what Agamemnon represents to him. I like that. Right. And I'm, I'm very into that. The problem is I think I had to squint quite a bit and meet this movie quite a bit more than mm -hmm. halfway to arrive at that conclusion, because I don't think that it's actually that represented in the movie. And I think the reason it's not is because I don't know. There, there are too many. There are too many instances where this movie is having too much fun doing things that, in my opinion, are not worth spending time on. Which maybe we can talk about more as we go on. But all that is to say, like, I think that there are things here, right? Like, I this is a movie that has a lot on its mind, that's thinking about a lot, like, and even the weirdness of it is toward an end. Like this is a movie that ends with this comedic beat of the parents touching true evil and blowing up because it's in their microwave. And that is a weird, shocking, hilarious ending. But like, even that is saying like, listen, like your, your parents don't know any better. And like these things that you experienced, there is true evil. Like you really did have this dream. It sort of like sets up this, it was all a dream and then immediately subverts it. Right. So it's saying that like kid, like, the things that you're learning about yourself and about history are true. And in fact, they're more true than your parents and their supposed authority. Right. And like that, that's a good message. And it's a very Terry Gilliam message. The problem is that it's a message that is not actually, in my opinion, really well represented by the rest of the movie. I did want to jump in uh, because I think the point you made about having to come to meet the film at that sort of theme completely agree where if you look at it, if I take the like the Harry Mackin reading of the film, you're completely right. All of those sort of uh, aspects of anti, uh, you know, authoritarian uh, messaging and imagery is there. the The question I sort of had in that uh, you brought it up when you talked about making these uh, these historical figures, the the Monty Python actors, and it just sort of being a farce. I kind of wanted to understand what you guys think of like what level you think that the comedy is working on because one thing that <laughs> stuck out well one thing that stuck out to me immediately was in the Robin Hood you know vignette when um 
they meet, uh, you know, John Cleese is, is Robin Hood. Uh, he calls out that one of his merry men is Marion. And I was just like, oh, that that's supposed to be made Marion. And it's not. It's, you know, like this big lurch of a man. And I was thinking, okay, wait. So are we saying that history isn't what you think it is? And the kid Experience or Kevin experiences it. And now this gives him sort of like knowledge that doesn't exist by you're assuming, you know, parents, professors, whoever taught him this history, or is it, is it just like, ah, uh, you know, the, the sort of knowing audience member would realize that it's supposed to be made Marion and it's a, and it's this big oafish character. How funny is that? So I, I was just curious what you guys thought about that. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I hadn't really considered that there's something metatextual going on there, maybe. I do like the implication that, you know, what adults understand about the world, like the, the dichotomy that I kept coming back to in watching this movie is that, you know, the kid with the, uh, you know, sort of lens of innocence, um, this is sort of tying into, I guess, what Terry Gilliam wanted with the whole, like this movie being a, a trilogy, um, like a loose trilogy between this, Brazil, and Baron Munchausen. Uh, like the idea that, and I've said this about Totoro as well, though this is a lot stupider way to get to the same idea, that fantasy and uh, you know the desire for escapism are necessary, uh, natural parts of, of human existence, and that the fact that the kid is um, so endeared to that and is still so open to that, as evidenced by the very first scene in the movie where his parents are watching uh, you know commercials and sort of talking about how well technology can suit their current lives, um, and he is reading about the Achaeans and about the 40 different ways that Spartans discovered to kill people. Uh, the Spartans, Greek people, really, really cool, uh, as it turns out. Uh, but the – like assuming that that's um like what the movie is trying to say about the character and about what we're seeing i'm about like how i guess how adults perceive would perceive the things that they're seeing you wonder it sort of brought me back to what would i think of this movie as a kid i think i would have maybe really liked this movie as a kid because i wasn't concerned about the structure of it or you know the sort of um the way that it builds or the, the plot or whether or not pay, things pay off. It is, you know, the irony of him being in a place and things not being as he expected. That's where I think the comedy is operating is like at a base level. Maid Marian is the big tall lurch who translates for the really angry robber guy. Um, you know, uh, Napoleon, uh, has one hand and is, uh, you know, constantly just, you know, fetishizing little people and, uh, you know, comparing himself to other great rulers of history, all these like ways that it slightly upends, uh, mythologies and sort of, uh, legends. I think that, I think that the comedy maybe is operating at a pretty base level of that irony. I think that it works a little bit more when you look at it the way Seth is, where what does it mean that, that like a kid open to these concepts and like interested in them is exposed to the quote unquote reality of the situation. And it's not, it's not what, you know, had been assumed to be fiction and it's not in line with what people had known to be fact. Um, I don't know if there's space between those two things, uh, between like, you know, the concept of presenting these things as ironic humor and seeing them as, you know, uh, an inversion or an iconoclast of of history. I don't know if there's space in there that the movie is really utilizing to build that character or build that case. Like Harry was saying, like you got to kind of squint to see it. But I think it is like at a base level operating functionally to make those moments funny. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that the way that you and Seth just described it is exactly how I feel about it. I mean, like, I'm really glad Seth brought up the Robin Hood, the Robin Hood skit in particular, uh, because I think it's em- emblematic of both what the movie's doing and my my issues with it, right? Which is like, it's not just Maid Marian. It's that like all of the merry men, quote unquote, are these like, unbelievably like dirty scarred up like like the refuse and like like cast-offs of society right and like the the movie's implication seems to be that like hey if you actually thought about robin hood the dude is like a weird psychopath who like like they say he's dangerous he's unbalanced giving away things that don't that don't belong to him like he's played in all of his glory by like by like ridiculous john cleese and um they they end up robbing the time bandits and um, they're, they're giving away uh, the treasures that the time bandits have accrued. And then one of the merry men punches each of the poor people in the face. Right. And like, so that's, that's exactly the sort of subversion that is set up Um, similar to Napoleon. I think the reason Napoleon was chosen first is because we would immediately sort of recognize what they're doing with, with satirization of history, because Napoleon is such a satirized character first, are like at first and it is almost symbolic of the sort of like authority figure that is actually ridiculous. Right. And so like putting him there first really like, um, like trains us to understand the, the sort of historical context and satire we're supposed to be reading into it. All of that operates, right. The problem, at least for me, and like, again, I really hate to just shit on things, but like I found both the Napoleon scene and the Robin Hood scene so profoundly unfunny, like not just in terms of execution, but also in terms of like even looking on paper at like what the idea of the sketch comedy was, was so not funny to me that I could not believe that it made it into the movie. It was like, it was so lazy to me that like the thing we're going to do with Robin Hood is just have him be cast as John Cleese. And, like, just have John Cleese say some things that are kind of funny, I guess, but we're going to do it for, like, seven minutes. It's like, it wouldn't have made it on, like, an episode of television, some of these sketches. Or, like, like Napoleon. It's like, haha, wouldn't it be funny if Napoleon was an idiot and he was obsessed with short people? And it's like, was this funny in 1981? Like, did I, was I, was the joke that Napoleon is obsessed with short people so fresh back in 1981 that I wasn't supposed to be bored to fucking tears by it? Because like, it did, it didn't work for me. And the movie grinds to a halt so that we can watch these little people strut around on stage to a laughing buffoon Napoleon for like literally 12 minutes of this movie. And like the movie is two hours long, largely because of these skits that they devote as much time to. And there was like absolutely no redemptive feature to them for me. And it was like, it was a really tough thing to get past for me at least. And like, it, it made me way less charitable about everything that I thought the movie was doing, even though I could see it at the moment, right? Like I knew that that was the point of the Robin Hood scene again but like like Seth pointed out only in the like Harry Mack and reading like if I made spark notes of this movie I think I would enjoy those spark notes more <laughs> than I enjoyed the actual experience of watching this movie because the actual experience of watching this movie was so fucking boring like I just really didn't like watching 12 minutes of John Cleese pretend to be funny and I just got very worked up so I apologize to all fans <laughs> of uh Time Bandits it's getting hot in the Zencaster chat uh I wanted to pivot so Cody uh you got any any thoughts there? Sure. 
Uh, yeah, this was a really quick thing. Uh, to be fair, the thing we get out of the Robin Hood scene, uh, like the sort of interaction, um, correct me if I'm wrong with the, the, like the type bandits don't like Robin Hood because he's, he's so flashy, you know, he's so flashy about, you know, the, the things that he's doing that the time bandits are kind of also doing. The time bandits are Lewin Davis and Robin Hood is Jim Berkey. Uh, <laughs> okay. I like this a lot more read. now. <laughs> so food for thought, um, cinephiles. That was, that was wild. Uh, um, I wanted to take that then. And like, so the, the sketches, like when I mentioned that the comedy is, is working at that base level of, you know, the ironic juxtaposition of, you know, our assumptions and our previous knowledge and sort of how Kevin as a character is able to subvert them or like, you know, in, imbibe them or absorb them in a way that maybe adults couldn't because of jadedness or because of, you know, the way that they've, they're set in their ways, that, that kind of thing. It's, it's a long running or just thing. like lack, lack of interest, right? Like his, right, his right. parents are not interested in history. The first, the very first scene of the movie is him trying to like tell his dad, like, Oh, there were these fighters who knew 59 ways to kill people with their bare hands. And he's like, yeah, whatever kid. Exactly. And like, that's the idea is that your interest in those things is like, it's like a key that unlocks this like world of, of mm-hmm. interest and, and anti-authoritarianism, et cetera. Yeah. I think we're talking beyond comedy when we talk about that part, but like the, the sketches really do stretch. I think the concept beyond the comedic potential they really have, like Robin Hood and his, and his band of merry men are not who you think they are, or, you know, they have certain characteristics that you would not have assumed or that you were not told about. And it, like Harry said, just beats that into like a 14, 15 minute scene that goes almost nowhere basically it exists to remove the treasure that they stole from napoleon bonaparte um but i think that makes the i'm really glad that both cody and harry i guess everybody to some extent brought up the the sort of spaces that this movie creates because they do the time and space of this movie are inseparable uh you know maybe keeping in line with the themes of you know being time bandits and uh but they are like the whole movie is signposted by the vignettes that it comprises. Right. Uh, you, you move from one like dazzling memorable set piece to another, and that makes the plot of the film move forward. Um, it's not as if we see any meaningful, like useful information pass in any kind of mundane setting. Everything is completely tied to these large scale monumental set pieces. And I wanted to get back to, talking about how those like what of those uh i guess i'll toss to aaron since he was bringing up the sort of practical nature of things but like what of those set pieces we were seeing throughout the movie or what of those scenes like put that into sharpest focus for you that like oh this this is the point of the movie is to show me these fantastical things and the other things are you know rain on the roof they're just background like the story maybe isn't moving with these it is really more to just show us these strange fantastical things um i don't know if i really i mean i think i maybe had a slightly different response to some of the i guess, sure. pieces, I guess is what you could call it um you know i don't i don't know if i liked the i don't know if i necessarily liked each sequence based on how much it kind of tied into the central themes of the story as much. Um, You know, I I think that it's so much on like a visceral level, uh, just where my, my own kind of appreciation for the set pieces that I think I liked better than the other ones was mostly based on, uh, you know, 
on a, a very base level, just the humor. I think there were some that were better than others. Uh, but also, I think that they're, you know, very inventive. Uh, you know, set piece to set piece is, is quite inventive. Um, you know, I do agree that the specifically the, the one with Napoleon, I think, is way too long. I think that if you just take that sequence out or you reduce that from, you know, 18 minutes to six minutes, I think that you already come away with a, a better film, right? Or at least a film where you can kind of... Yeah, I agree with that. You know, like this is this is a two-hour movie. That it probably should be an hour 40, I think. Um, so I think that that would help. I know that's like a super super practical thing to say, but I, you know, I think I, I disagree with some other... I, I generally enjoyed the Robin Hood sequence. Uh, maybe that's just my love of, of John Cleese. Uh, but I, I thought that the, the idea of a bunch of thieves meeting a, a different bunch of thieves who kind of think they think they're chum with them. Uh, and then it turns out that their goals are kind of exactly the opposite due to the nature of who Robin Hood was. I think that that's kind of a fun, ironic thing. Maybe the, the sequence doesn't need to take that long, but I, I also think that it's funny when old ladies get punched in the face in films. Uh, so I was willing to go along with it. Hey, um, hey, those old ladies, three of them were Greek. How do you feel now? I feel, I feel better. I, to be honest, I mean, I know this is this is probably not what everybody else feels, but I, I feel like the the sequence with Agamemnon specifically is actually uh, one of the weaker sequences. Yeah, for I sure. Mean, it's uh, like very and, much the Nutcracker phenomenon, right? Where it's like, well, now the two main characters are going to sit down in a chair and watch some other people dance for like ever for like the rest I, of the movie. I, I think you're over. I, I, I feel like it, it, it was kind of doing the same thing with the Napoleon sequence. I mean, the, the dancing in that scene took a minute and a half. And I, I think the, it felt the, like a lot longer though. Uh, maybe. I mean, I think the idea of the, the time bandits being the dancers and then them, you know, stepping into a portal uh, at the last moment is fun. You know, yeah, yeah uh, it was, <laughs> that's, that's true. Especially because like they were gone from the movie. And so they came back and there was like a surprise. That wasn't a terrible scene. I agree. Yeah. I, I you know, I also, I, I thought the, the, like the fight sequence with the Minotaur is like weirdly, uh, well done. It's, it's actually. Pretty good, dude. Hell yeah. Um, like, I, you know, a lot of that Sean Connery just kind of acting it up and, uh, afterwards and whatnot. But like, I guess what I'll also, I think that my enjoyment of each sequence was, uh, quite a bit dumber than I think what people are, are trying to get at here with like the themes of the film and whatnot. You know, I, I think that I, I kind of enjoyed each sequence based on how humorous it was and kind of how inventive it was. You know, I think of things like the, the ship falling on the giant's head and how they dealt with that. I think that is a, a fun sequence uh, kind of similarly. I think that, uh, you know, kind of tricking this, this ogre by, stretching him out is like a very silly thing, but I, I think that's it sure. is very viscerally enjoyable to watch that stuff. Uh, it, it kind of you near know, the end of the film too, I think is similar in that manner, even if there's maybe, maybe two or three minutes that, that aren't needed of that kind of final confrontation. I hate to, I'm sorry to make you uh, have to defend this movie, by the way, Aaron, yeah, it's it. like, to, it's like totally fine I mean, to, to enjoy it on that level. I mean, I think that that's how it works. Like, I, I think that if you're looking for some sort of kind of thesis statement here, I mean, I don't I don't think it's here. I think that there is stuff, you know, Terry Gilliam has, has approached this, uh, you know, has approached this content before. I, I think that you can kind of tell specifically the, the stuff with Kevin's parents, I think, is actually very funny and like, uh, you know, I think that yeah. the, the his his mother saying, 
uh, complaining that she doesn't have the, the newest oven, which turns a block of ice into a pork roast in 15 seconds. You know, I think that that is very funny. Uh, the, the It's literally standard. Repo Man. Have you noticed that? That this movie is Repo Man? Which, you know, I, I got to dig that. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it's very much that kind of, it's like very subtle, but it's very much that kind of science fiction uh, around this time that was very much concerned with kind of changing like domestic roles, specifically like woman in the household uh, with, with technology and, and, you know, uh, cleaning and, and, and technology in the kitchen and whatnot and how that was changing gender roles and, and kind of a typical day and whatnot. I think that that is stuff that Terry Gilliam always kind of lampooned that stuff that Monty Python did as well. Monty Python was, was constantly, uh, you know, dressing all of its stars up as like old ladies who would sit around gossiping and drinking tea all day and kind of the ridiculousness of kind of middle and upper middle class British life. I think that's something Monty Python is interested in, was interested in. Terry Gilliam has always been interested in that. I don't think that it's saying, I don't think it's like saying anything, but like as someone who enjoys that kind of stuff being lampooned, I guess I, I enjoyed that aspect as well. Nice. Uh, yeah, I I really liked your characterization um, specifically of the the sort of singular nature of these like spectacle heavy sequences, um, uh, you know, each set, not necessarily uh, like as, as far as finding the like the rationalization for them, I, I guess like I'm sort of in a, a similar camp and I guess I'm in a mood where I'm trying to tie back to as many previous episodes as possible. But like hearing hearing Aaron uh, like talk through that made me think of the Andromeda strain, which is uh, like very different visual film, obviously, but we, in that discussion, I'm kind of remember us getting to, you know, these are like very specific, uh, uh, fancy visual tricks that, that we can now do with cameras and special effects. And like one scene was like very procedurally leading into another. And with each new scene, we got a new like techno techno technologically nice bit. I don't really know how else to say it, but just like things that looked nice and new. And like, I didn't like, if you kind of the, the motif here of us meeting the movie halfway, if you did want to meet time bandits and kind of the ebbs and flows halfway, like you can maybe, if you squint, you can maybe kind of see it doing that in that, you know, Oh, in in this story we are now on a boat so so now we need to be on a boat on the water uh and just like there are a lot of reasons why these scenes looked really nice um but as far as like meta textually like contributing to how nice these uh these set pieces looked yeah i i guess i'm i'm not as as willing to squint i suppose that's interesting because I think I kind of come at it from the opposite perspective. Like I'm not a guy, despite maybe everything that this podcast suggests, right. Who needs to have everything tie tightly into this sort of like overarching, like theme, uh, or narrative. I was doing that to give credit to those scenes because that is the way in which I experience them best. Uh, I like, I think that some of the individual sequences in this movie, especially when you consider that the movie was built around them as tent poles, as opposed to stringing along a narrative theme are like really bafflingly poorly chosen. Um, like, and maybe this is just a difference of sensibility, but like, I don't know, man, like that one troll sequence in the, like the realm of darkness or wherever they are, it's like, 
they they created this movie that is so open and so full of imagination that they could have done anything with that sequence and the thing that they chose to do was to introduce this random troll character who like is getting older and so his back hurts and so all of the main characters have to stretch him out to fix his back I thought, but then I thought for uh-huh, certain, they yeah, got I, him i thought for sorry, certain this was going to be like a beauty and the beast thing like they ran away after he wasn't able to turn back into a human or whatever. And then that was going to be some riff on the legend. See, that would be funnier, right? Like that would be a funny joke, especially because they're in the realm of legends. Right. So you, you would think like, Oh, I get it. What I thought they were going to do exactly. Jason is like, okay, now we're going to lampoon like mythology itself and be like a wolf among us or, um, fables type thing where it's like, aha, these aren't your dad's, your grandfather's like folk tales, right? This is the truth. But no, it's just some fucking random troll. And like, they spend 10 minutes, like, uh, cracking his back and then throwing him off of his own ship. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like, who thought of this? And like, for what purpose? It's like, it's not funny. It's not clever. It's not like visually stimulating to me. And and it was just like, it was like the kind of thing where it's just like, I guess kids will find this funny and we had to like make this appealing to kids or something. And again, like, I'm not trying to be an asshole, right? But like, it was just like, you could have done anything with this sequence. And I felt that way about a lot of the sequences, right? Where it's like, we could have gone anywhere in history. And like what we, what we ended up with was like this, this like very pulseless, very lazy Robin hood thing, or like this unbelievably low hanging, like, like anti clever Napoleon sketch. Um, or like this, uh, you know, I, it was just like, if you're going to make a movie about a series of tentpole scenes set throughout history and throughout mythology, like you better make those scenes fucking bangers. And instead they're the worst part of this movie by like a considerable margin. And it's just like, what happened? Like, how did, how did you get here? And it's like, it's either that you were trying to do this big thematic thing, which I was trying to do, or like you were creating these tent poles and it's like either way, this movie doesn't really succeed in my mind. Right. I think it's best evidenced by like at least two distinct pieces in this movie, two distinct vignettes, like between that one, which I thought for certain was uh beauty and the beast, you know, bell and, and the beast being, you know, I don't know. They, they took off after their marriage or whatever. And the other one being Sean Connery as turns out to be Agamemnon when clearly it is Theseus and the Minotaur. That yeah, I, scene I is, definitely that, thought he was Theseus. It's, it's super I, weird that he I wasn't. I certainly but, did too. And, then and also like, tr- isn't Theseus generally a more heroic figure than Agamemnon? So it's sort Agamemnon of weird is that. Like, sure. He's leading the Achaeans in the Trojan war and stuff, but like, he's not, he's no Theseus, right? I, I don't know. Like, I think just some of that shoehorning mixed like concepts stuff right off the bat, like you said, you gotta, you gotta hit all homers. And when you're starting at least two pretty important scenes to the movie, well, important quote unquote, pretty time consuming scenes in the movie to things that people don't really wrap their heads around, despite being very clear and limited in their scope for like a good 10 minutes of the bit, it maybe indicates that somewhere along the line, either in the writing or in the, you know, in the concepting stage, or maybe even in editing, that something could have changed to make things a little bit clearer, to make things like give me more of a foothold, at least to understand the thing where it is instead of, you know, revealing 10 minutes into the bit that it's actually Agamemnon tying back to the exact person he was talking about before. I think just like starting off on the wrong foot is a way that a lot of these vignettes, a lot of these little stories get tied up and like fail to realize they're full potential as comedic bits 
I didn't want to like add to the the pile on hate of the vignettes and all that sort of stuff. But uh, one thing that did stand out to me is in all of our discussions about the different vignettes, the ones that we haven't talked about at all, as far as I can tell, is the Titanic bit. Um, and to me, that just kind of like exemplifies the the issues where, you know, it now now there are no characters uh, except for the recurring two characters. Uh, I forget their names. Please forgive me. Um, uh, Vincent Lanzi. Yes. yes. Kelly yes. Duvall and Michael Palin. Yes. Yes. Um, outside of those characters, it's just uh, Kevin and the Time Bandits. And that is where, you know, I guess they're really moving the plot forward. Um, but then, like, it's it's not that funny of a scene. And it also is kind of like, okay, what, why are we here? Why did, why the Titanic of all places? Uh, And it, it just doesn't make sense. And I I guess it, to me sort of reinforces that where it's like, if you, if you are going to build this around vignettes, make these vignettes work on multiple levels. uh, But they don't seem to do that. Yeah, well, and, and like not to to pile on the pylon, but like this is what you do, right? Like they're they're fucking Monty Python. Like if you're gonna build sketches, your sketches should knock it out of the park because like that is what your bread and butter is. And so like the fact that we instead got these like lazy sketches really like frustrates me, I guess. And you know there are, there are other good parts about this movie that are, that are much less. Uh, lazy, right? Like, I think that that the evil one is fantastic in this movie. Um, but like, yeah, like, like, what is if if you get Shelley Duvall? Uh, I want Shelley Duvall to be very funny and great because she is. And instead, there are these there are these jokes that like that don't even register for me. Shelley like Duvall, the, that was good. I'm, def- I'm defending the Shelley was. Duvall, Michael Palin bit. It was good. Th- Jason, are you but, with me on this? Please. I'm, I'm, I'm with, the I'm entire conceit of the second one is that he has a funny nose. That, that shouldn't no, be embarrassing. Had, like, no, she's okay with the nose. He also has a hair piece that she does not know okay. about. Okay, so I think... I, damn, yeah, you're right. I agree. I agree. That that elevates it from like hilarity to knee slapping. But I think that the humor, the real humor in that is we were introduced to these characters before. It is not like because they're part of the story. It is because they're part of our viewing experience. I think it's the reason that those characters are funny is that they're recurring. Yeah. Is that we saw them, you know, in 1596 or whatever that was. And then on top of that, Right, we're because, seeing them again you know, today, and that's like kind of the theme, right? Is that history is is cyclical? Right, nobody right. has ever known that these these types of people are always going to exist, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Plus, Shelley Duvall is just up and down, and She's just great. so like animated in that role. Yes. You know, it, it, it's very funny seeing her do that. Um, also, I, we know I, that they they are going to fall out of the sky once more in the midst of yeah. this theme, and that is in the back of your brain. It is a leveling. It's one of the rare circumstances in which, like. The, well, what the well, movie is set up yeah what, what the movie is set up actually kind of works in that respect i think that ill-advised is probably a good uh nomer for a lot of the bits in this movie a lot of the vignettes is like okay so concept beast needs his back cracked to to be intimidating boom how do we do that right nope we're going to take this angle at it we're going to have the kid crack his back and it's going to take 14 full minutes before anything happens and it just, you know, you can, you could chalk that up to like a British dryness or you could chalk it up to, well, maybe like 
nobody told Terry Gilliam no. <laughs> I it's hard to hard to register like uh what exactly went wrong in a lot of the creations of these vignettes. But like again, there are moments that I think are genuinely funny. And most of them, frankly, are around David Warner as evil genius. We really haven't spoken about him too much, but I know it's a his, shame. He's great. His bits so we're, we're we're almost an hour in and like I have nothing but good things to say about him. The whole like every time that a joke is set up with him, it's just it always lands. Oh, it's night and day, right? Like like to it's the point wonderful. where it's like, oh like this is like a different better movie when he's right. on screen. Because like when he says a joke, I laugh at it. It's it is great. Like uh, you know, somebody asks him how, if he's an all-knowing being, how he can't escape the fortress he's in, and he explodes him on the spot, just like double explosion. He circumvents back into himself, becomes an explosive nexus, and boom. And then he's like, it's a good question. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, such a good- I, I, I love that. I love, like, that was that was very funny. If he had been a more consistent presence, or if, like, we had sort of gotten a Maleficent style, like, let's check in with him more often, uh, I think it would have been a great, like, tying, registering thing. But ultimately, he wasn't part enough uh, enough of it. His, you know, minions were sort of, I don't know, sidelined as, uh, you know, just part of the movie rather than, uh, you know, sort of the antithesis or the, um, you know, the yin to the yang. I don't know. It it that part of it, unfortunately, though it is solid gold, was just so invisible throughout for me. Um, I saw Harry's hand up for a second. Was there? I, would, I just wanted share? to say my favorite line in the entire movie was when the evil one is like making these really good Paradise Lost esque points about how uh, the the Supreme One must be a lunatic, and he's like, "This is the guy who's in charge of designing the universe. Forty three species of pa- parrots. If I was in charge, I would have started with lasers. Eight o'clock, day one. <laughs> it's like <laughs> he's got a great point. Uh man, it's 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 really that that is really good. Um, it's. Unfortunately, not enough to save the the whole enterprise, but it works a lot. Uh, well, we're at the hour mark. Does anybody have anything else to shoot out before we uh, before we get into our final segment? Uh, I'll say also that I think the uh, you know this this is not a film that spends too much time. I think just due to the structure of it, uh, it kind of spends most of its time hopping between these different uh, situations, uh, and at, due to that, I think that the uh, the specific time bandits in general are not given uh, like, a, a, you know, this is not a film where each one has like a completely different personality. Right. There's little variances here. I think that that's, I think that generally works given what. The yeah, I doing. agree. Uh, but I will say, I do think that all of the actors that, that played the uh, time bandits, I think are very good and expressive. And I think that they work. And frankly, I think that uh, as we talked about earlier, I think the kind of blandness of the character of Kevin is definitely an issue. Uh, but I think that the time bandits themselves uh, are kind of interesting. Uh, and I, I enjoy watching these kind of greedy, uh, very petty, uh, uh, you know, characters kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Literally like, but, like but they're also, God. they're also lovable, right? Like, I don't think that at any point, despite being greedy and despite being sort of um, like small mind, well, no pun intended, small minded. Um, they're at no point are we like rooting against them, right? Like I always liked them. And I, I think that a big part of that is that um the actors are great. And also it's just it's awesome to see like like six or seven little people in major roles that like the joke isn't ever on them. Like the fact that they're dwarves in this movie is not ever played for laughs, it just is, right? Yeah, and, like, they- they, uh, we, bri- I mean, briefly mentioned it, but they, they are little people. And I, I, I began, I'm just thinking about like how a Tim Burton movie, it would just the CGI it. Right. And it would just be like dog shit. 
uh, but like Terry Gilliam cast these actors and it just good actors. Well yeah. Film. Yeah. And, and they, uh, we also should mention that. I mean, they are all, uh, I think tiny Ross is the only one who does not have a Wikipedia page, which you know, the film heads are IMDb, but I, I just don't use IMDb for some reason. But, uh, many of them have been in, in not only other Tilly, Terry Gilliam movies, but star Wars, uh, one of them played R2D2. I mean, um, notable actors. So yeah, I, I think they, they all do a great job in this film. Really solid. Um, Seth, Cody, was there anything else you wanted to squeeze out before we uh, head on to that one? Segment? Oh, Lordy. Uh, I, I'm, you've put me off my appetite um, with your, your classic uh, linguistic choices, um, but no, no, I'm, uh, I'm good. Okay. You, you, no, no, uh, yeah, yeah, you're good. I'm good too. We're all good. We're all Seth, good. are you good? Yeah, no, we're all good. Cool. Then Harry, uh, help me ring it in. Yes, I would love to. It is time once again for <gasps> Cody's, Cody's noties. Wow, brilliant! Um, thank you, as always, for that lovely introduction. Uh, time Bandits harbors, among other things, a general fixation on time. Uh, in part because it's roughly half of the movie's title. While we're here uh, occupying this time-heavy headspace, I figured we may as well take the time, the time, to shout out some events from specific histories that are only vaguely related to this movie. Welcome to Time Love. Uh, I'm trying really hard with these segment names, you can tell. Uh, Within Time Love, uh, uh, I guess you could register that, come to think of it as Within Time, Love. Um, So interpret that as you will. Within Time Love, wink, we're going to bop around to some notable moments from the careers of those who starred in the film Time Bandits. Uh, I'll state the event, and I'll need each of y'all to offer a guess of the year in which that event took place. Multiple folks can guess the same year. I know that's not the cool thing to do, but uh, you certainly can, especially if you secretly know the correct answer. Um, So therefore, multiple folks can potentially get a point each round if multiple people have the same correct answer. I'll go through in alphabetical order. I think I just hit the mic. Sorry about that. I'll go through in alphabetical order by first name and collect guesses from each of you. Uh, The player with the most points by the end of the game wins. As always, trivia mafia rules apply here. Use your noodles, not your Googles. Um, So yeah, with that, uh, thank you for listening to Time Love, a podcast taking place across space and time where we talk about the people we saw in the movies we watched and the points in time during which they did things. I'm very glad I didn't trip over that. Um, But are are y'all ready to go here? I'm ready. I believe so. Yep. Excellent. Um, so we'll kick off first with uh, with Jim Broadbent, who has a, a small role in Time Bandits. Shoutouts to Jimmy B. Uh, this is actually one of his earliest film roles. Uh, as we're all hopefully well aware, he goes on from here to have a very decorated career. In what year did Jim Broadbent win an Academy Award, Aaron? Uh, oh. <laughs> God, his ass now. <laughs> uh... Jeez, this is so. This is eighty one. Uh, two two thousand three. Two thousand three says Aaron. Uh, thank you for articulating that thought process, Aaron. Harry, you can articulate the thought process as well, uh, if you want. That's I I I'm not I'm saying that non sarcastically. Feel free to. Um, but Harry, what is your year? Nineteen ninety four. Nineteen ninety four says Harry. Jason, uh, what you thinking? Nineteen ninety nine. 1999. Feeling very fine. Uh, Seth, uh, what is your uh, guess? Uh, 1993. 1993. Seth? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, price is right in your ass right now. <laughs> yeah. 
inverse phrases writing uh the the correct answer so jimmy b won his first and currently only oscar in 2002 oh uh, sure this uh this was the uh, academy award for best supporting actor that uh, he won for the movie iris which is both an all-timer by the goo goo dolls and also a biopic about the british irish novelist iris uh iris murdoch i've never heard of that fucking movie me either uh, I this, guy, this guy has been in so yeah. much shit, though. This guy's like the one sure. of the more recognizable. I assume he's British. Yes, British actor. Well, he's he's BBC stock, right? He's Shakespearean stock. He's been in everything. He's great. I love Jim Broadbent. I just have never great heard of this fuzz. movie. Very good in Hot Fuzz. True. Oh yeah, he's good in pretty much everything he's in, uh, as far as I can remember. Uh, he, I'll shout out um, just because we're shouting things out. Uh, he's great in Another Year. That's a Mike Lee film that I found during quarantine. I gotta watch yeah. that. Uh, it's very, very good. Um, so yeah, Jimmy B, come on the pod. Uh, anyways, we'll we'll move next uh, number two to to Kenny Baker, who we all probably best know as R two D two in most of the Star Wars films, um, the OGs anyway. Uh, Mr. Baker was also a brilliant musician. In what year did Baker put forth, by his own account, his best musical performance? Aaron. Uh, I do remember reading his Wikipedia page about his uh, music. I do not remember anything about what you were asking, though. Uh, That's fair. 1973. 1973, says Aaron. Uh, What says Harry? Uh, 1984. 1984 is the guest. Jason? 1980. 1980. And Seth? Uh... I'm going to say 1988. 1988. Uh, I really so thought going, you were going to say 85. I really thought. Oh, that would have been really funny. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, going by a few sources online, uh, Baker was a first class mouth organ player. In 1997, he had a guest appearance with the James Coutts Scottish dance band at Hugh McCaig's Silverstone party. I think Jesus I said that Christ. mostly correctly. Is that even uh, and, real? Did you make all that up? What are you talking and, uh, about? <laughs> reportedly, uh, again, these are his words, that was his, quote, finest musical experience. Um, this is all on the internet, this, so this, this, it like, is Cody's canon. That, that comes through my mind as I'm gasping for breath and my brain is like <laughs> slowly flickering away into nothingness. I'm like, Jim, Jim Broadbent, 2002. <laughs> The the long awaited James Coutts Scottish dance band at Hugh McCake Silverstone Party <laughs> trivia notice. <Yeah. laughs> um well okay, in, in any case we've got uh, we've got two folks on the board here, uh Aaron and Seth. Uh both uh they each have a point. Uh, we only have five of these <laughs> because they're so long winded. Um but we're on to, to number three. Uh Shelly Duvall, welcome back to the to the episode. Um we'll check in with her. She plays a few different versions of the character Pansy in Time Bandits. At one point, famed film critic Roger Ebert said that one particular performance in Duvall's career was a role that she was, quote, born to play. In what year did the movie This Role Belongs To get released? Aaron? Uh, <laughs> I mean, Aaron is know, deflating. Stand by. Uh, not ni- 1989. 1989, says Aaron. Harry? I can't remember when this movie came out. 1980? 1980, says Harry. Jason? Uh, we are not given the name of the movie, correct? Uh, you will eventually, but not right now. No. Okay. Uh, I I am also going to vote 1980. 
All right, and Seth. What? Uh, pile me in on the nineteen eighty. This is bullshit. I want, I, want Harry, I want you to know that I was going to pick 1979, but that would <laughs> literally have you explode. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, yeah that's. Was, I, I appreciate I that. Even remember? Did I? What did uh, I? Aaron's guess was 1989. Um, so uh, this is the thing. I think this there's is... a gas leak in all of our apartments right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's let's hope not. Um, in part because this was only a slight patented Nodi curveball, uh, and I'll explain why. The correct year uh, for this question is 1980, uh, and Ebert's Ooh. quote was said in reference to Duvall's performance of Olive Oil in Robert Altman's Popeye. Yeah. Oh my god! Uh, the Shining came out the same year. I think. Yeah, you son of a bitch. Yeah. So only only a little curveball. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Harry, Jason, and Seth all come away with points uh, from that from that round. It's extremely funny because, like, I love Shelley Duvall. I think she's a fantastic and underrated actress and person. Yes. But she was born to play Olive Oil. <laughs> like, he's right. Uh, I think we've found our next uh, fellas watch. But we'll we'll talk about that more off mic. Um, as we jet over to number four, uh, we have Sean Connery in the building. Uh, he did not portray Robin Hood in Time Bandits, as we've discussed. Uh, he was, in fact... That character, rather, was in fact played by John Cleese in this movie. However, Connery did portray Robin Hood in a different film. In what year did Connery's Robin Hood performance get released to the world? Aaron? Oh, uh, 1978. 1978, says Aaron. Uh, who's on a social media break? Uh, sorry. Uh, Harry, what's your guess? Um, nineteen eighty three. Uh, no. Uh, nineteen seventy six. Nineteen. I'm just gonna cross out eighty three and seventy six. I didn't take uh, my hand off the piece. You said nineteen seventy six. Six. Thank you. Uh, Jason. I have no idea. So eighty eight. Nineteen eighty eight says Jason and Seth. What you thinking? Nineteen seventy three. 1973, uh, not quite Price's writing, but uh, I guess technically speaking, that's what happened. Uh, Sir Sean Connery starred in Robin and Marion in 1976. Uh, the, the <laughs> Harry's fumbles uh, paid off this time. Uh, he played, uh, Connery rather, played the titular Robin, and Maid Marion was played by Audrey Hepburn. Um, Connery also had right? Uh, pretty wild. Um, Connery, uh, I've not seen that by the way. I'm trying to make a point to see more Audrey Hepburn movies, uh, because I stand, but, um, that's one that has uh, eluded me. Um, but I'll probably get around to it uh, at some point. <laughs> I tried to like figure it out by like the very scientific, uh, process of trying to figure out exactly how old Sean Connery had to be to most convincingly play Robin Hood. And then as I said it, I remembered that Russell Crowe was like fucking 68 years old or whatever when yeah. he played robin hood so like all bets are off yeah yeah a lot of fun takes on robin hood um i like stopped halfway through this but connery uh had a very small non-robin rule in robin hood prince of thieves which came out in 1991 uh so shout outs to robin hood come on the pod we're at number five uh we're at the end of the road now we've got uh two folks tied it to uh harry and seth um jason and aaron are both on the board with one so there's a lot uh, a lot uh the, re- the real lot. The real battle is fought in the trenches hey uh you heard it here um f- not first uh that's come up before but jason's right uh this last uh time hole uh if you will involves sir ian holm 
Uh, and this prompt also invokes the Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So I ask you all, in what year did Sir Ian Holm most recent, or I'll, I'll take that again. In what year had Sir Ian Holm most recently acted? I'm still not sure that's right. In a feature narrative film that abided by the Rashomon rule. Barring my grammatical nightmares, uh, Aaron, if you get the scope of that question, what is your guess? The that year in which abided. Ian Holm that abided. Okay. Uh, yes. The Holm abides. Is Ian Holm still alive? Uh, we we have the unfortunate um, opportunity to talk about a lot of uh, actors in this segment who are no longer with us. Sir Ian Holm and uh, Sir Sean Connery both passed away within the past year. Oh, with very sad. Yeah. Okay, yes, I was gonna. Okay, uh, uh, two thousand four. Two thousand four says Aaron Harry. Uh, two thousand nine. 2009 says Harry. What does Jason say? I just want to say Harry said that a little bit too confidently. Uh, so I'm going to say 2008. 2008. Go ahead, Seth. Go ahead. Do 2010. Uh, See if I care. Seth, what you got? Seven. Uh, 2011. Whoa. 2011. Um, I'm not mad. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, shout out really quickly um, before I give the answer to Aaron's guess of 2004, the year of Our Lord, The Day After Tomorrow, the greatest film ever made um, that Sir Ian Holm was in. Um, not a Rashomon rule movie, but uh, the correct answer here is in fact 2006. Uh, so Aaron and uh, Jason are equidistant from that, so so they each get a point. Uh, yeah, sorry, Bocos. Uh, the film in question is The Treatment, which is 86 minutes long, going by details found on letterboxd.com, and uh, it co-stars Famke Jansen, who is uh, probably best known as Jean Grey from the OG X-Men movies, and, uh, and Griffin Newman, co-host of the Blank Check, uh, Blank Check podcast. <laughs> there, are, there aren't a lot of people in this movie what that are um, already. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah, I guess ch- checking the score... Holy, did we all end up... T- Everybody got two points. Are you shitting me? <laughs> no. Okay. So hold on. We're all the time bandits now, baby. F- first round, Aaron got a point. Second round, Seth got a point. Third round, everybody but Aaron got a point. Fourth round, Harry got a point. Fifth round, Aaron and Jason each got a point. I'm seeing everybody comes away. It's because we, it's because we, we agreed no leaders, right? So <laughs> That's shut right. up and listen to what I have to say. <laughs> wow. What, so, a, what a time left to be alive. So shut up and listen to what I say, and please feel thanked for having listened to our episode of Try Love. Thank you so much, Cody, for uh, thank you, Cody, for wow. I don't know. I, I I refuse to believe that you didn't plan us all getting like egalitarian points Everybody, on that one. Everybody, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna frame my little scratch pad uh, that I used to keep score. I'm going to frame it. I'm going to put it on a Thank wall. You. I'm going to remember it. This is like a, a cosmic miracle that I will not forget anytime soon. So you thank you all happen- gentlemen for you being a part of this. When we, when we uplift each other, Aaron, instead of trying to drag each other down all the time, like we can achieve great things. Uh, I wasn't dragging anybody down except for the mm. Greeks as a people, except mm. for them. I was not dragging anybody down. Mm. Okay. Who else but Aaron? Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Trilove. This has been our episode about Time Bandits, a 1981 film by Terry Gilliam. It is playing at the Trilon. Go to trilon.org for tickets or for information on how to, uh, I guess, stream it, 
wherever you are. I know that it's on HBO Max because Aaron stole my login to watch it last night. Uh, but until our next episode, you can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon.org, excuse me, at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get merch and join the Trilon Club and tickets and all that kind of stuff. If you, sh- if you should happen to go out and uh, view a film anywhere, uh, including at the Trilon, wear two masks now, uh, f- officially adopting the Trilove two mask stance policy. Uh, wear two masks. Don't be an asshole. Don't bring drinks into the theater and stuff. Uh, you won't see me there, but trust that I will, um, that I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll know. Uh, you can find me, Jason Daphnis on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Um, actually I should, before we sign off, thank you so much, Seth, for being on another episode of Trilove. Uh, next time we'll try to make sure that Terry Gilliam and, uh, Bruce Willis are nowhere near the next film, just to give you some, some range. I don't believe you, but it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Love talking, uh, talking shop with you guys. And where can people find you, Seth? Uh, they can find me at S N Zarati. Incredible. I, that, that was a really bad way to botch my own outro, but I'm Nintendoofus. Cody. He's Nintendoofus. Uh, friendly reminder, the real time bandits are those in the administrations who have deprived us all of, uh, almost a year and counting of being able to, um, freely associate within the world Ooh, in ways Cody's that we, uh, are, are, uh, accustomed to, um, as uh, individuals listening to a goofy ass uh, podcast right now about the movie Time Bandits, there's understandably not a lot that you can do, but um, adopting the two mask policy is uh, a great step in the right direction. Please uh, continue to do what is possible within your respective powers for uh, bolstering uh, the lives around you in whatever ways that you can. Uh, I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Holy shit, Cody. Let's go. Yeah, uh, right. Remember that the pandemic isn't over. Remember that things are as bad as they are, largely because of uh, how badly both administrations that we've uh, lived under have botched their response and hold them accountable now and in the future, I guess. Uh, Let this radicalize you rather than lead you into despair, I suppose. Um, You could do both, uh, as I tend to, but um, radicalizing is probably better. Um, Greek... Greece rules. Uh, Greek mythology is the best mythology to learn about by far. Uh, it's great. Um, I will not let Aaron disparage it. Um, I've been Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Chitaki Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. Uh, yeah, the, my the real time bandits I know about are the friends I've made along the way, but also everything that Cody said. I guess uh, you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. To be melting the cheese in the southerly breeze, to be sharpening the skewer again. Treasures of history to be found. In legends of time, all the handiworks
Apology. 